The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 27th day of September, 2013. Welcome to episode 282 of The Corbett Report podcast, the IPCC Exposed. Now, if you, like myself, have been following the public debate over climate science for the past decade, you will no doubt remember the hyperbolic media coverage that surrounded the release of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's fourth assessment report, aka the Climate Bible, back in 2007. The world's top climate scientists couldn't make it any more clear. Global warming is real, it's getting worse, and we're to blame. Climate change is putting the world on the verge of a catastrophe. That's the stark warning from the United Nations Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon. What's in the report is sobering enough. Global warming is unequivocal and irreversible. Man-made greenhouse gases are shooting up, driving the rise in Earth's temperature and sea level and the decline in Earth's snow cover. You know, the scientists have done their work. It's now time for governments to, uh, to do their work. Uh, it's time for Canadians to also accept their responsibilities. For years, skeptics, including some in Canada, said the proof wasn't there, that the science was shaky. Well, not anymore. Climate change is becoming more obvious, the evidence growing clearer by the day. There's a range of possible futures. At the low end, we could get a, a warming of about three and a half degrees, which would be probably the fastest global warming in the history of civilization. But at the high end, the possibilities range up to a warming of about 12 degrees globally, which in my view and the view of other scientists would be disastrous. And we don't know whether we're going to get the three and a half degrees, the 12 degrees, or anything in between. Obviously, governments should be saying, let's plan for the 12 degrees and hope for the three and a half degrees. Yes, I think it's fair to say that the IPCC's fourth assessment report back in 2007 was treated by the media with the same reverence that would have been reserved in a bygone era for the uh, the Holy Bible. And I suppose that's particularly apt because it has been pointed out many times and deserves to at least be mentioned once again that there are numerous parallels between the religious dogma of old and the environmental dogma of now. Not only the fact that the fourth assessment report was repeatedly and consistently referred to as the climate bible by that self-same media, but also that it represents, of course, an ideology in which the original sin of our carbon production can only be atoned for by buying carbon indulgences from the carbon priesthood. More on which later, but first sticking specifically to the science of the matter, because this is the point at which the proponents of disastrous man-made global warming always wants to come back to, and rightfully so, I think it's important to understand that the legitimacy of the IPCC's assessment report process to speak for some sort of scientific consensus has been repeatedly undermined in the years preceding the publication of that last report. And as one obvious example, 
example of that, we can point to the ClimateGate scandal that hit in 2009. And I will refer, I will not belabor the point here, I will simply refer to people to my previous work on this subject, which I have done uh, in numerous times in the past. And I will put notes, uh, links in the show notes for today's episode so you can go and watch some of my previous ClimateGate reporting. But perhaps here, at the very least, we should note that when we say that ClimateGate was incriminating for the uh, climatologists who whose work feeds into the IPCC and in some cases are the lead authors of the assessment report, uh, it, we, we use that word incriminating quite judiciously and quite quite specifically because one of the interesting aspects of ClimateGate that the people who want to sweep that entire uh, scandal under the rug fail to ever point out is that the UK's information commissioner in fact found that Phil Jones and the other uh, researchers at the Climatic Research University at the University of East Anglia uh, climate, climatic Research Unit, excuse me, at the University of East Anglia, actually did break the law by illegally withholding information from legitimate freedom of information requests that had been filed with the CRU. So they were in fact found guilty of breaking the law, but it was not prosecuted because by the time the information commissioner had received that complaint and the details of it by the ClimateGate scandal, it was already past the statute of limitations for uh, prosecution. So these are really unconvicted criminals who have uh, participated in this scandal, and that's uh, one aspect of ClimateGate that needs to be pointed out again and again. And uh, But it, ClimateGate, of course, was not the be-all and end-all of the undermining of the IPCC's legitimacy in the years since the publication of its last assessment report. In fact, there have been numerous scandals that have uh, propped up, uh, co- cropped up again and again to further undermine that legitimacy. And there's a lot to go through, so perhaps as a quick summary, let's turn our minds back to a Sunday update that appeared here on the Corbett Report a few years ago. In our top story this week, the UN's beleaguered intergovernmental panel on climate change is facing more troubles this month as some of its own lead authors strike out against it. Last Sunday, a paper co-authored by IPCC lead author Mike Holm went viral on the internet after it was pointed out that it contained a damning critique of claims that the UN-led political organization represents a consensus of 2,500 scientists. Claims such as 2,500 of the world's leading scientists have reached a consensus that human activities are having a significant influence on the climate are disingenuous, he wrote in the paper. In a subsequent statement last Tuesday, ostensibly clarifying his remarks, he wrote, quote, Giving the impression that the IPCC consensus means everyone agrees with everyone else, as I think some well-meaning but uninformed commentaries do or have a tendency to do, is unhelpful. It doesn't reflect the uncertain, exploratory, and sometimes contested nature of scientific knowledge. End quote. Also last week, IPCC lead author Richard Toll added his voice to the growing ranks of scientists who feel that the IPCC process must be completely reformed before its fifth assessment report is conducted. Regarding the much-criticized procedures for crafting the political report, Toll wrote, Quote, I think that the IPCC should suspend the AR5 process, fix the procedures for nominating and selecting authors, and postpone the report to 2015. I'd rather bet on New Zealand winning the World Cup. End quote. The much-criticized organization and its procedures are currently under review by the Inter-Academy Council, and in a hearing last week at McGill University in Montreal, IPCC lead author John Christie slammed the IPCC defenders as gatekeepers who have become victims of groupthink. 
These criticisms come on the bank of a series of scandals that have exposed the IPCC as a political organization writing reports for a specific political agenda. In January, IPCC lead author Marari Lal admitted that they had deliberately used a prediction that Himalayan glaciers would melt by 2035, a prediction they knew to be false, to put political pressure on world leaders. Also in January, it was revealed that IPCC predictions that global warming would destroy up to 40% of the Amazon rainforest came not from peer-reviewed scientific literature, but a World Wildlife Fund pamphlet written by a green activist. In February, it was revealed that IPCC had underestimated Antarctic sea ice by 50%. Also in February, it was discovered that an off-sided claim that African countries could see a 50% reduction in rain-fed ag agriculture in 10 years was also sourced from a political advocacy group. Also in February, the Netherlands protested that the IPCC fourth assessment report had claimed that 55% of their country was below sea level, with Dutch authorities clarifying that only 26% of the country is in fact below sea level. Recent polls show a rise in the number of people who believe that global warming concerns are generally exaggerated, with one poll showing that more Americans believe in haunted houses than man-made global warming. Now, admittedly, that was a lot of information in a very short time, and each one of those scandals that I cited there deserves looking into in and of itself. So, of course, in the show notes for that episode of Sunday Update, you will find the links to each one of the scandals that I was talking about there, so you can go and do some more research into it. But as damning as all of that information is, things got even worse for the IPCC the next year with the release of Donna Laframboise's groundbreaking research into the institution in her book, the delinquent teenager who was mistaken for the world's top climate expert. And she appeared on The Bolt Report with Andrew Bolt to talk more about what she uncovered about this august UN body. Donna, thanks for joining me. Is the IPCC really made up of 4,000 top scientists? Well, that's a fairy tale that politicians really like to believe in, but in fact, that's a very, very problematic number. Um, the last big IPCC report was written by 450 lead authors with an additional 800 secondary authors. That comes to 1250. That's a pretty big far cry from 4,000. So first of all, the number is, is problematic. And secondly, is it 4,000 of the world's top scientists? Well, I'm afraid it's not. I found out that some of the people writing this report are actually graduate students in their 20s. They're some of them 10 years away from even getting their PhDs. How could that That's happen? not a top scientist. That's You know what? I'm not sure. I think um, I think they just um, they they didn't get any scrutiny. They really didn't. They said, this is what we're doing, and we're, we're a collection of top scientists, and we all believed them, and no one bothered to double-check. Uh, is it the case, then, that people are being chosen, uh, some of the examples you give, people who hadn't even done their PhD yet, they're chosen because they agree with the opinion, not because they could prove it? Well, you know, um, one suspects that that's what was going on, that, that in fact people were chosen because they perhaps could be easily led, they were young and could be easily led, perhaps because they had already expressed um, the kind of opinion the IPCC brass was, was hoping um, the report would, would express. It's, it's not clear, but it, it, when, it certainly looks fishy. And lastly, uh, we were told that it relies on peer-reviewed science. That doesn't seem to be the case from what you seem to have established. 
Well, that's the other thing. That's the other big um, fairy tale here. The, the chairman of the IPCC has been going around the planet assuring us that the reports are based only, solely, and exclusively on peer-reviewed science. Well, when I actually decided to check out how, much, how many of the sources cited by the IPCC were published in peer-reviewed scientific academic journals, only two-thirds were. And we also discovered that 21 out of the 44 chapters had so few peer-reviewed sources that that chapter would have received an F on a grade school report card. <laughs> uh, well, so, uh, it seems to me, Don, uh, you know, what, yes, what you also found out was a lot we were reviewing on green groups uh, literature and uh, I think people really should look at what you've uh, come up with because uh, I think it'll really startle them how thin this material is. Donna Laframboise, thank you so much for joining us. Now, people who are interested in a more in-depth conversation with Donna Laframboise about her research and what she uncovered in the course of writing her book, I will refer you to the interview archives on CorbettReport.com for interview 434, where I had an in-depth conversation with Donna about that topic. So I will refer you to that interview and, of course, to her book itself for more on the scandals that undermine the so supposed legitimacy and authority of this UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and its pronouncements. But just like in some bad horror movie where the killer comes back at the end despite having supposedly been killed off earlier in the movie, it seems that the IPCC is also coming back and now it's preparing to release its fifth assessment report. Guess what, everybody? They're back. And it's almost exactly the same as what we saw in 2007. We're going to begin with news that is hot off the presses. The latest word on climate change. United Nations report just released in the past hour says it is extremely likely that humans are mostly to blame for temperatures that have been climbing now for decades. How sure are these scientists? They say about 95% certain. And in science, 95% is pretty darn certain. The report says there's now a 95% chance that the pollution we cause in the atmosphere is causing the planet to get warmer. First, uh, the IPCC declares that 95% certainty that humans are responsible for more than half of the observed increase in global average surface temperatures from 1951 to 2010. Um, some other major conclusions that they have that aren't that far off from their previous reports, but nonetheless emphasize and confirm previous findings uh, that we can expect. They expect a range of temperatures in uh, the next century to go up 1.5 degrees Celsius to 4 degrees Celsius, uh, that works out to be about 6 degrees Fahrenheit, um, and also predicting a 10 inch to 3 feet sea level rise by 2100. The IPCC report is expected to conclude with at least 95% certainty that human activities have caused most of Earth's temperature rise since 1950 and will continue to do so in the future. That's up from a confidence level of 90% in the 2007 report. The, the last year the assessment came out. That's right, it looks like they're reading from essentially the same script, as if nothing had changed in the intervening years, not only in the perception of the IPCC as a body that could be relied upon to accurately collate and report on this scientific data, but also the scientific data itself, as if nothing had changed in the intervening six years to call into question any of the main predictions or assessments that were contained in the fourth assessment report. 
Well, this is not reflective of reality, and it is a sad state of affairs, if not particularly surprising, that this is not being reflected in any way by the same media that has exhaustively and persistently and repeatedly uh, sided with the global warming propagandists and alarmists on the side of the IPCC throughout this supposed debate that has been happening in the past several years. But if there is a difference between now and 2007, it's that not only is there opposition to the IPCC and its pronouncements, but that opposition has, in fact, already struck some mortal blows to this most recent assessment report before it was even released to the general public. Because, as part of the IPCC's strategy for getting certain media organizations on board with the IPCC before the release of the report, they released, they, they, they previewed, they snuck some, uh, the, a preview of the uh, assessment report to some friendly media organizations, and somehow or other, it got spread a little more widely than they were intending. And that leak allowed some people who were not so friendly to the IPCC to also evaluate the, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's assessment assessments in the fifth assessment report, and they did not critique it kindly, and for good reason, for good scientific reasons. So let's take a look at a couple of those critiques, and we'll start with one by Ross McKittrick. And for people who aren't familiar with McKittrick, he, uh, along with Stephen McIntyre, produced a groundbreaking statistical analysis that completely undermined the now infamous hockey stick graph, which was one of the first big busts of the IPCC's propaganda of extravaganza that attempted to convince the world that global warming was a modern phenomenon and completely unprecedented in human history, etc., etc. Well, that has been thoroughly undermined by the work of people like McKittrick and McIntyre. And now McKittrick has also taken to the ring to give his own pronouncements on the recent assessment report, which he received a copy of in the previous weeks. And his article on the subject is called IPCC Models Getting Mushy and is subtitled, In the Next Five Years, the Global Warming Paradigm May Fall Apart If the Models Prove Worthless. So let's read a little bit of that report. Quote, There has been a lot of talk lately about the upcoming Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report and whether it will take into account the lack of warming since the 1990s. Everything you need to know about the dilemma the IPCC faces is summed up in one remarkable graph. The figure nearby is from the draft version that underwent expert review last winter. It compares climate model simulations of the global average temperature to observations over the post-1990 interval. During this time, atmospheric carbon dioxide rose by 12% from 355 parts per million to 396 parts per million. The IPCC graph shows that climate models predicted temperatures should have responded by rising somewhere between about 0.2 and 0.9 degrees Celsius over the same period. But the actual temperature change was only about 0.1 degrees and was within the margin of error around zero. In other words, models significantly overpredicted the warming effect of CO2 emissions for the past 22 years. Chapter 9 of the IPCC draft also, also shows that overestimation of warming was observed on even longer timescales in data collected by weather satellites and weather balloons over the tropics. Because of its dominant role in planetary energy and precipitation patterns, models have to, have to get the tropical region right if they are to credibly simulate the global climate system. Based on all climate models used by the IPCC, this region of the, the atmosphere, specifically the tropical mid-troposphere, should exhibit the most rapid greenhouse warming rises anywhere. Yet, most data sets show virtually no temperature change for over 30 years. 
In the section of the report where it discusses the model observation mismatch in the tropics, it admits, with high confidence, that models overestimate warming in the tropics. Then it says with a shrug that the cause of this bias is elusive and promptly drops the subject. What about the implications of this bias? The IPCC not only falls conspicuously silent on that point, it goes on to conclude, despite all evidence to the contrary, that it has very high confidence that climate models correctly represent the atmospheric effects of changing CO2 levels. End quote. Now that's just a small section of that very lengthy and very interesting article, so I will really recommend that you go and read that full article by following the link from the show notes of today's episode, but uh, it, it certainly does go to at least start to point out some of the major groundbreaking flaws of this most recent assessment report and how it handles its confidence and certainty over things that are not turning out the way that uh, the IPCC or anyone else predicted based on the supposed climate consensus. And this is further reflected in the writings of Judith Curry. For those who don't know Judith Curry, she is a climatologist and chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology with over 130 scientific peer-reviewed papers under her belt. So certainly not someone who can be charged with being just a, an amateur or someone who doesn't have peer-reviewed science on her side. And in fact, someone who was the darling of the pro climate change community back several years ago when she was warning about the effects of man-made climate change, but in recent years she's been more and more questioning the supposed consensus surrounding the IPCC's assessment report and the official conclusions of the man-made global warming crowd, and as such has been increasingly marginalized by her once uh, great pals in the global warming community. A very interesting figure, if for that reason alone, and of course her writings are extremely interesting and extremely insightful on these matters, so I will refer people to her website, judithcurry.com, where she blogs about all the latest developments in climate science. And let's just take her take on the recent IPCC report, as she discussed a, a couple of weeks ago, talking about one of the leaked final drafts of the IPCC's fifth assessment report, where she noted some of the same problems that Mitch McKittrick was talking about. For example, she states, quote, what interests me the most about the AR5 report is how the IPCC is changing its positions and statements relative to the previous AR4 report. It is particularly interesting to see how the different drafts of the AR5 summary for policymakers are changing. I am very grateful that these drafts have been leaked, as these drafts provide important insights into the reasoning behind the IPCC conclusions and confidence levels. The IPCC should, of course, change its conclusions and confidence levels in response to new scientific evidence and analyses, because of the rapid rise of publication of papers over the past year that challenge, that challenge aspects of the AR4 conclusions, the slow, ponderous assessment process of the IPCC has been apparently having difficulty in responding to and assessing all of this, as evidenced by the substantial changes in the drafts. My main point is this. If there are substantial changes in a conclusion in the AR5 relative to a confident conclusion in the AR4, then the confidence level should not increase and should probably drop, since the science clearly is not settled as, and is in a state of flux. While there has been a re reduction in either the magnitude of the change or in a confidence level in some of the supporting findings, these changes do not seem to have influenced the main conclusion on climate change attribution. Quote, it is extremely likely that human influence on climate change caused more on climate caused more than half of the increase in global average surface temperature from 1951 to 2010. End quote. 
The extremely likely represents an increase in confidence from the very likely of the AR4. An increase in confidence in the attribution statement in view of the recent pause in global warming and the lower confidence level in some of the supporting findings is incomprehensible to me. Further, the projections of 21st century changes remain overconfident. These inconsistencies seem to me to reflect a failure in meta-reasoning by the IPCC. I hope that these inconsistencies are pointed out at the forthcoming meeting in Stockholm. End quote. Again, a very important article from Judith Curry's blog, so once again I will refer you to that blog so you can continue following all of the twists and turns in the coverage of this latest assessment report. But I think we are getting the idea that there are some major fundamental underlying flaws in the very, very contestable statements about uh, the, the extent, the high confidence that man is causing the climate change that we've seen in the past 50 years, etc., and this, of course, will be nowhere reflected in the hyperbolic media coverage surrounding this report. So I think we have to really gird ourselves against the media propaganda blitz campaign that we are likely to be subjected to in the coming weeks, once again trying to renew the hype over the IPCC and its findings. And hopefully we can guard ourselves against that by actually taking a look at what some of these scientists themselves are actually saying about the science. And once we do so, we of course find very troubling inconsistencies like these that are being pointed out. And of course, this raises two very interesting questions. One of them is, why is this happening? The other is, how? In the why is, of course, probably the more important of those two questions, but it is one that has been really well covered, I think, by a lot of different aspects of the alternative media, including work that I've done in the past. So for a brief summary of why the IPCC is being clear, so clearly steered towards its inevitable conclusion that man is to blame for man-made global warming and we are all going to die if we continue to emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere... Well, we can turn back to that 2010 Sunday update that we were looking at earlier. In related news, the collapse of the man-made global warming hysteria has made it difficult to pass carbon cap-and-trade legislation in the Senate that is a key step in creating a carbon derivatives market that will create trillions of dollars for Wall Street firms and oil companies. Attempting to rally support for the proposed Kerry Lieberman cap-and-trade bill in the Senate, Barry Sotero delivered an address this week arguing that the BP oil spill not man-made global warming, is the real reason this legislation is needed. The tragedy unfolding on our coast is the most painful and powerful reminder yet that the time to embrace a clean energy future is now. Now is the moment for this generation to embark on a national mission to unleash America's innovation and seize control of our own destiny. Each of us has a part to play in a new future that will benefit all of us. As we recover from this recession, the transition to clean energy has the potential to grow our economy and create millions of jobs. But only if we accelerate that transition. Not mentioned by Sotero is the fact that BP in fact helped to write the cap-and-trade legislation, nor the fact that GE has lobbied strenuously for the creation of a cap-and-trade scheme from which they stand to benefit to the tune of billions of dollars, nor the fact that Ken Lay of Enron helped to design a cap-and-trade scheme with Al Gore, Goldman Sachs, and others in the 1990s, nor the fact that Sotero himself, currently going by the name Barack Obama, directed a charity that granted $1.1 million to launch the privately-owned Chicago Climate Exchange. 
At this time last year, when cap-and-trade legislation was being voted on in Congress, it was pointed out that cap-and-trade is a money-making operation for the very oil companies and Wall Street financiers who are supposed to be punished by such legislation. At that time, the future carbon market was estimated at $2 trillion a year. Even Sotero himself has admitted that any costs incurred by oil, co oil companies under such a scheme would merely be passed on to consumers. Under my plan uh, of a cap-and-trade system, electricity rates would necessarily skyrocket. Even, you know, regardless of what I say about whether coal is good or bad, because I'm capping greenhouse gases, coal-powered plants, you know, natural gas, you name whatever the plants were, whatever the industry was, they would have to uh, retrofit their operations. That will cost money. They will pass that money on to consumers. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to be said about those various subjects. So once again, I will refer you to my previous work on this question of why this process is being steered in the direction it is. But I think we can all see, for example, the monetary interests that are at play here, which are self-evident and self-explanatory to a large extent, which I've covered at nauseum, for example, in my coverage of the ClimateGate scandals and what was really behind that. But beyond all of that, there's another question, which is the how. And I think this is a particularly interesting question because it's not one that is often examined in a great degree of detail in the alternative media that is questioning this supposed scientific consensus. And that's because it's somewhat more difficult to really get a grip on because there is the cartoon version of this, this monolithic conspiracy to fudge all of the data by the IPCC in which I guess every single scientist who believes in this man-made global warming and the catastrophic results thereof is part of a shadowy cabal that is working behind the scenes to fudge the data specifically for the purpose of de defrauding and enslaving the public. Whereas I think that is a motivation that certainly does pertain to the people at the very top of the pyramid of society, i.e. the powers that shouldn't be. I certainly don't think that it applies to the average scientists who are working in their everyday trudgery and basically siding with this so-called consensus. And it is a question of how then can this consensus be perpetrated and perpetuated on a public, including even the scientific community itself, which, with some very notice, notable exceptions, which are of course completely ignored in the media, but uh, for a, to a large extent is not openly questioned by the scientific community, or at least not in a very visible way. How can this be done? How can the entire IPCC itself be steered in this direction without the active, willing, conscious complicity of each and every one of its participants? And of course, the answer, well, at least part of the answer comes from the very name of the organization itself. It is staring us right in the face. This is not the scientific climate change consensus working group or anything of that sort. It is the intergovernmental panel on climate change. It is specifically and explicitly a body that has been created to try to form a governmental consensus for policymakers in order to orient them orient themselves and their their government's policies in an environment that takes climate change for granted it is the intergovernmental panel on climate change and that is not something that is merely reflected in the name of the organization it is in the very dna of the organization and its roots and its mandate and its charter and the scope of its reports 
And this is something that actually did strike me at the time of the release of the fourth assessment report when I was still on the fence about the IPCC, and I was genuinely interested in getting to the nuts and bolts of the report that I was hearing so much about in the media. So when these reports started appearing in February of 2007, I was very interested to read the report for myself. And given that this is the internet era in which the some of human knowledge is available at our fingertips, I assumed it would only involve a quick search in order to find the report and read it for myself. But I was wrong, because in February of 2007, when they were hyping up this statistical almost certainty that mankind was causing a type of global warming that was unprecedented and likely to kill off half of humanity in the near future, or whatever their assessment was in the end, that was actually based on a document that was not the actual scientific do document that the IPCC produces. It was the Summary for Policymakers. The Summary for Policymakers is a document that is that is that represents the conclusions of the IPCC process, but that in fact is released before the scientific report is released. And the scientific report is then retroactively changed to be in line with what that conclusion that is released before it is about. It is a bizarre process, and one that could not stand if the public actually understood it. But of course, the public does not. They are told by the media that this report concludes this. And very few people, unfortunately, actually go and try to read the report for themselves, because if they did, the fraud would be exposed very quickly. Well, let's take a listen to a very interesting conversation that I conducted with Dr. Tim Ball in Victoria, Canada, several years ago now, and which is available on the 2009 Video Archive DVD, where we talk specifically about the IPCC and how this fraud is perp perpetrated and perpetuated. My name is Dr. Timothy Ball, and I have a PhD in climatology from the uh, Queenberry College at the University of London, England. My experience uh, after having chaired commissions of inquiry for government or being on, on commissions of inquiry with government is that commissions of inquiry with government are there are certain things that politicians love. Commissions of inquiry are one of them. Uh, deficits are another because with a deficit they can say, oh, sorry, we can't afford that, but then if they want to do something suddenly, magically, the money's there. Um, with a, if, if there's a problem or a conflict that develops and it's causing a lot of difficulty for the politicians, they can say, oh, we will appoint a commission of inquiry. It'll be independent. And uh, that takes the heat off the issue. Oh, yeah, the government's reacting. They're finally appointed a commission of inquiry. And if they don't, of course, they say, oh, you're afraid to put one on. You know, you're hiding something. So, okay, we appoint the commission of inquiry. Um, but then what people don't realize is they control the outcome of that commission of inquiry. Now, first of all, they've got the advantage now because if the media come and say, well, what's going on? can't talk about it. Commission of Inquiry, wait till their report comes out. Well, that delays usually two, three, four years, by which time all the political heat's off. But more important is they control it by the terms of reference. And the example I like to use is the Warren Commission Inquiry into Kennedy's assassination. And Judge Warren was asked about something after. He said, well, why didn't you look? Oh, it wasn't in my terms of reference. He'd been limited by 
those that wrote the terms of reference. And that was my experience. One of the first cases I was asked to look at, and the minister said, uh, I, gave, I said, he said, would you look at this? And I said, sure. And then I get the terms of reference. And I said, I can't work with that. I can't provide you with a proper answer, a complete answer with those terms of reference. Of course, then the minister says, well, sorry, that's what you got to work with. And I say, fine, then I'm not doing the job. And I'll go to the media and say, you're trying to limit the investigation here. So I could one-up him uh, with that. And so when they set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Morris Strong, who we, we should talk a lot about, um, he wrote the terms of reference. And uh, the first term of reference was the definition of climate change. And he limited it deliberately to only human causes of climate change. And uh, of course that effectively eliminated all the natural causes, natural variability, which is why you see them not looking at things like the sun uh, and, and a whole bunch of other, other issues. And um, of course he then limited it even further in uh, another term of reference that you, he, he set it up into three working groups. There was the technical group, working group one, which was wrote the science report. And that was 600 of the 2,500 people. The other 1,900 were in working groups two and three. Now they were inconsequential because they had to accept the findings of working group one, which were already limited by their terms of reference. So whatever their finding was, Working groups two and three then said, okay, you've, you're telling us it's going to warm. We accept that as fact. We now look at the implications of that. And that's where you hear all these stories about, oh, the, melt, the, the ice is going to melt, the sea level is going to melt. So really, the majority of the report by 1900 scientists is accepting without question the finding of the first group. Now, Strong, it really restricted it even more because they then, well, they, they came out and said, look, the, this report is not to be used for policy. But then they set up the summary for policymakers, the absolute contradiction of that. <clears throat> and the summary for policymakers is written by a, a, a completely separate group. And then they write it independent of the science report. They write science reports finished and set aside. The summary for policymakers is written and, and given out to the media. So for example, the last report, our, uh, the fourth assessment report, came out in 2007. The summary for policymakers was released in April. The science report wasn't released till November. The rules, the terms of reference that Strong wrote said that the summary for policymakers goes back to the science report people and says, make sure your science report agrees with what we've put in the summary. So it's like a, a, an executive of a company writing the summary of a report and then telling the employees to find the facts to agree with the summary. And it's the most unbelievable process you can imagine. So it's in those terms of reference through the IPCC that not only have you effectively eliminated most of the major causes of climate change, the natural variability, and of course, if you think about it, unless you know how much natural variability there is, how much natural climate change there is, and what are the fundamental causes of that, you can't possibly identify that 
fractional part that may be due to humans, but that's that's precisely what they're doing, and uh, so um, that's that's uh, why uh, things appear so illogical, and why so much is left out of of the um, IPCC or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, which have become the authority. A very interesting take on the matter and one that goes, I think, to the heart of the issue and how these types of frauds are perpetrated on the public and how they can be sustained even in the face of supposedly well-educated and great thinkers like those in the climate science and science community generally, who one would think would be the first to call out the type of scientific fraud that is being perpetrated with these documents. But this goes to show, again, that if you can shape the scope and the, the nature of the investigation itself, then you can determine its outcome beforehand. And that's a very important principle that we will discuss in more detail in an upcoming episode of this report on a completely different matter, but again, it's the same principle that applies over and over in these phony investigations. And people who are interested more in the setting up of the IPCC and its history would be strongly, I would strongly recommend that you look into the history of Morris Strong, who has absolutely nothing to do with science, in fact was a junior high school dropout who uh, happened to uh, to catch the eye of a younger David Rockefeller who took him under his wing and helped him steer uh, the UN along towards the creation of the IPCC and the Rio Summit in 1992 and many other things besides. A very unlikely multi-millionaire um, who emerged uh, basically to try to to further this this agenda through the United Nations. Fascinating character and someone that we've uh, we've at least touched upon. We've we've talked about him, for example, explicit, explicitly in episode 87 of this podcast. The UN doesn't love you, so I will refer listeners back to that for more information on Morris Strong and the foundation of the IPCC. But I think if there's anything we can take out of today's episode of the podcast, it is that we need to brace ourselves for the upcoming propaganda blitz that is about to hit us regarding this fifth assessment report. And the fact that the only thing that the mass majority of the mainstream media will report, of course, is that the IPCC is only further bolstering its previous assessments and in fact going even further than ever before in predicting just how dire the consequences of carbon dioxide and basic human industrial activity are going to be for the future of the planet. So we have to gird ourselves against that by arming ourselves with knowledge. The best place to go for knowledge on these matters is places like, for example, judithcurry.com, which I cited earlier. Climateaudit.org is an invaluable resource. What'supwiththat.com absolutely a exceptionally important resource for uh, keeping up to date with what's happening. And I would like to humbly suggest that people also support myself as I start a new video series talking about different aspects of the global warming fraud, because once you start to look into it, there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of little points that come and make appearances on the climate science stage and then go away before anyone has a chance to really dissect them. There are so many of those that are, really need to be dissected. So I'm going to be starting a new a global warming series coming up in the coming few days where I'm going to release one specifically on this issue of the IPCC's fifth assessment report. So I will ask your support in helping to spread word and knowledge about those videos and that video when it appears in 
particular, as we can really make a difference as, for example, the alternative media's spearheading of the ClimateGate scandal shows we can break through to, to the mainstream masses who only get their news from the BBC and other biased institutions like that. And on that note, of course, another way to help spread the word is to purchase, for example, the 2009 Video Archive DVD that we were watching earlier with that interview with Dr. Timothy Ball. And, of course, several other reports on here, over uh, 90 minutes of material, video material that is region-free, plays in any DVD player. This costs 1,300 yen on its own. That's about 13 American dollars. But if you buy it as part of the set, 2009, 2010, 2011 video archive DVDs, it's 3,000 yen, about 30 American dollars. And again, that goes to help support the work that I'm doing here. So your support, as always, is appreciated. You can also support by subscribing to my Corbett Report subscriber newsletter. And I'm working on a very interesting editorial that will be coming out this weekend on five people you won't believe were funded by the CIA, which is a particularly interesting article, so you can look forward to that if you are a subscriber to my newsletter. You can find out the DVDs and how to subscribe to the newsletter at corbettreport.com support. But I'm going to leave it there for today, asking you, as always, to do more research for yourself. You can use the show notes for today's episode as a starting point for that research, but there is much, much, much more to explore on this issue. So, of course, we will be coming back to it again time and again in the future. That's it for today. Thank you for joining me for this edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me again next week. But it will rain again I don't know when But this must The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support.